Chapter Two of Agincourt, a Romance by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, The Hall and Its Denizens. The hall of the old house at Dunbury, long swept away by the two great destroyers of man's works, time and change, was a spacious vaulted chamber of about sixty feet in its entire length, by from thirty-five to forty in width but at the end next the court a part of the pavement of about nine feet broad and some eighteen or twenty inches lower than the rest was separated from the hall by two broad steps running all the way across this inferior space presented three doors the great one communicating at once with the court and two others in the angles at the right side and the left leading to chambers in the rest of the building at the further end of the hall on the left was another small door opposite to which there appeared the first four steps of a staircase which wound away with a turn to apartments above there was a high window over the principal entrance from which the room received in the daytime its only light and about halfway up the chamber on the left hand was the wide chimney and hearth with seats on either side and two vast bars of iron between them for burning wood in the midst of the pavement stood a long table, with some benches, one or two stools, and a great chair, in which the master of the mansion seated himself at the time of meals. But the hall presented no other ornament whatever, except a number of lances, bows, crossbows, axes, maces, and other offensive arms, which were ranged with some taste against the walls. The armoury was in another part of the house, and these weapons seemed only admitted here to be ready in case of immediate need, for those were times in which men did not always know how soon the hand might be called upon to defend the head. When Richard of Woodville and his companion entered, some six or seven large logs, I might almost call them trees, were blazing in the hearth, and, in addition to the glare they afforded, a sconce of seven burners above the chimney shed a full light upon the party assembled round the fire. That party was very numerous, for several maids and retainers, of whom it may not be necessary to speak more particularly, were scattered round the principal personages, busy with such occupations for the evening as were common in a rude age, when intellectual pursuits were very little cultivated. The group in front, however, deserves more attention, consisting of seven persons, most of whom we shall have to speak of more than once in the course of these pages. In the seat within the chimney, just opposite the door sat the master of the mansion, a tall, powerful old man, who had seen many a battlefield in his day, during that and the preceding reign, and had borne away the marks of hard blows upon his face. He was spare and large-boned in form, with his hair and beard very nearly white, but he was hale and florid withal, and his countenance, though strongly marked, had an expression of kindness and good humour, not at all incompatible with the indications of a quick and fiery temper, which were to be discovered in the sparkle of his undimmed blue eye, and the sudden contraction of his brow when anything surprised him. The seat on the left side of the fire was not visible from the door by which the two wayfarers entered, but beyond the angle of the chimney protruded into the light the arm, shoulder, and part of the head of another tall old man, apparently clothed in the grey gown of some monastic order. On the left of Sir Philip Beecham 
was seated a young lady, perhaps eighteen or nineteen years of age, with her arm resting on his knee and her head and figure bent gracefully towards him. Her hair was as black as jet, her skin soft and clear and her complexion somewhat pale, though a slight tinge of the rose might be seen upon her cheek. Her eyes, like her father's, were of a deep clear blue, though the long black fringes that bordered her eyelids in a long sweeping line made them, at a distance, look as dark as her hair. She seemed neither above nor below the ordinary height of woman, and her whole figure, though by no means thin, was slim and delicate. The small, exquisite foot and rounded ankle, inclining gracefully towards the fire, were displayed by the posture in which she had placed herself, and the hand that rested on her father's knee with long fingers tapering to the point, showed in every line the high Norman blood of her race. Next to Isabel Beecham, the only daughter of the old knight, was another lady, perhaps a year younger. She was in several respects strikingly contrasted to her fair companion, though hardly less beautiful. Her hair was of a light glossy brown, catching a warm gleam wherever the light fell upon it, as fine as silk new spun from the cone, yet curling in large bunches wherever it could escape from the bands that confined it. Her complexion was fair and glowing, her cheek warm with health, and her skin as soft and smooth as that of a child. To look upon her at a little distance, one would have expected to find the merry grey or blue eye so often seen in the pretty village maid, but hers was dark brown, large and full and soft, yet with a laughing light therein that seemed to speak a buoyant and a happy heart. In form she was somewhat taller than the other, but though her waist looked as if it would have required no giant's hand to span it round, yet there was that sort of full and graceful sweep in all the lines, which painters and statuaries, I believe, call contour. Naught but the tip of one foot was seen from beneath the long and flowing petticoat then in fashion, but even from that one might judge that nothing much more neat and small ever beat the turf, except amongst the elves of fairyland. Her hand rested upon a frame of embroidery at which she had been working, and her head was slightly bent forward as if to hear something said by the good abbot of the convent, who sat opposite to his brother in the seat within the chimney. But between her and him was another group, consisting of three persons, which somewhat detached itself from the rest. Two were seated, a lady and a gentleman, and the third was standing with his arms folded on his chest a little behind the others. The backs of these three were turned towards the door by which Woodville and his companions entered, and they were somewhat in the shade, being placed between the lower end of the hall and the light both of the fire and the sconce. But as we are now looking at the picture of the whole, we may as well examine the details before we proceed. The lady bore a striking resemblance in features, complexion and form to Isabel Beecham, whom we have already described and the Lady Catherine might well be taken, as was often the case, for her cousin's sister. She was taller, indeed, though not much, but the chief difference was in the expression of the two countenances. Catherine's wanted all the gentleness, the tenderness, the thoughtfulness of Isabel's. It could assume a look of playful coquetry, it could seem grave, it could seem joyous, but with each expression there mingled a touch of pride, perhaps, too, of vanity, and a scornful turn of the lip and well-chiselled nostril, as well as a quick flash of the eye, spoke the rash and haughty spirit which 
too certainly dwelt within her breast. We are the slaves of circumstances from our cradle, and the mother and the nurse form as much part of our fate as any of the other events which mould our character, guide our course, and lead us to high station, retain us in mediocrity, or plunge us into misfortune. Catherine Beecham, like her cousin, was an only child and an heiress, but her mother had brought large possessions to her father, and with those large possessions an inexhaustible store of pride. She had looked upon herself, indeed, as her husband's benefactor, for he was a younger brother, of small estate, and after his death she and a foolish servant had rivalled each other in instilling into her daughter's mind high notions of her own importance. In this, as in many another thing, the mother had proved herself weak, and the spoilt child had early shown her the result of her own folly. She did not live long enough to correct her error, even if she had possessed sense enough to make the effort, and when Catherine came to the house of her uncle as his ward, her character was too far fixed to render any lessons effectual, but the severe ones of the world. There, then, she sat, beautiful, rich, vain, and haughty, claiming all admiration as her due, and believing that even her faults ought to be admired for her loveliness and her wealth. Beside her was placed her mother's nearest relation, a distant cousin named Simeon of Royden. He was a tall, robust, well-proportioned man of two or three-and-thirty years of age, with a quantity of light hair close-cut in front, and left long upon the back of the head and over the temples. His features were in general good, and what with youth and health, a florid complexion, fair skin, bright keen eyes, an aquiline nose, somewhat too much depressed, and an air of calm self-importance and courtly ease, he was the sort of man so often called handsome by those who little consider or know in what beauty really consists. Nothing, indeed, that dress could do was left undone, according to the fashions of the day, to set off his person to the best of advantage. His long limbs were clothed in the light-coloured breeches and hose, without division from the waist to the foot, which were generally worn by men of the higher class, but so tightly did they fit that scarce a muscle of the leg might not be traced beneath, and his coat was also cut so close to his shape that except on the chest, where perhaps some padding added to the appearance of breadth, the garment seemed to be but an outer skin. His shoes exhibited points of at least six inches in length beyond the toe, and the sleeves of his mantle, which he continued to wear even in the hall, hung down till they swept the floor. He wore a dagger in his girdle with a jewelled hilt, and a clasp upon his coat with a ruby set in gold, while on his thumb appeared a large signet ring, of a very peculiar fashion and device. Notwithstanding dress, however, and good features, and a countenance under perfect command, there were certain minute but very distinct signs to be perceived by an eye practised in the study of the human character, which betrayed the fact that his smooth exterior was but a shell containing a less pleasant core. There was a wandering of the eyes which did not always seem to move in the same orbits, there was an occasional quiver of the lower lip, as if words which might be dangerous were restrained with difficulty. There was a look of keen, eager, almost fierce inquiry, when anything was said, the meaning of which he did not at once comprehend, and then a sudden return to a bland and sweet expression, almost of insipidity, which spoke of something false and hollow. He was talking to Catherine Beecham when Richard of Woodville and Hal of Hadnock entered, 
in gay tones, often mingling a low laugh with his conversation and eyeing his own foot and leg as it was stretched out towards the fire, with an air of great self-admiration and satisfaction. The figure of the third person who stood close behind the lady, as if he had come round hither and left vacant a stool which appeared on the other side, to take part in her conversation with Sir Simeon of Royden, was as tall and finer in all its proportions than that of the knight who sat by her side. His chest was broader, his arms more muscular, the turn of his head and the fall of his shoulders more graceful and symmetrical, his dark hair curled short round his forehead and on his neck. His straight-cut features of a grave and somewhat stern cast wore their least pleasing look when in repose, for they wanted but the fire of expression to light them up in a moment and render them all bright and glowing. His eye, however, the feature which soonest receives that light, had in it a fixed melancholy which scarcely left it when he smiled, and now, though he had come round thither to interchange a few words with Catherine, his betrothed wife, and her gay kinsman, Sir Henry Dacre had fallen into thought again and remained standing with his arms folded on his chest and his look fixed upon Isabel Beecham as she leaned upon her father's knee. His gaze was intense, thoughtful, I might call it inquiring, but yet it was not rude, for he knew not that his eyes were so firmly fixed upon her. He was buried in his own thoughts, and perhaps the peculiar investigating expression of that look might be accounted for by supposing that he was asking questions, difficult to solve, of his own heart. Isabel herself did not remark that he was gazing at her, for she was listening to some anecdote of other days which her father was telling. But the old knight did observe the glance of his young friend, and he observed it with pain, yet more in sorrow than in anger, for there were some things of which he bitterly grieved, but which could not be amended. He broke off his story for a moment to mutter to himself, Poor fellow! And just at that instant his eye lighted upon Richard of Woodville, as the young traveller opened the great door of the hall. His brow contracted while perhaps one might count ten, but was speedily clear again, and he exclaimed, laughing aloud, "'Ha! Here is Dickon again. I thought he would not go far.' Everyone turned round suddenly, and all laughed gaily except one. But the fair girl with the rich brown hair, sitting next to Isabel Beecham, gazed down the hall, with a smile indeed, but with a kindly look gleaming forth through her half-closed merry eyes. "'Ah, run away!' cried Isabel Beecham, still laughing. "'So you have come back. "'Yes, sweet cousin,' replied Richard of Woodville, advancing up the hall with his companion. "'But I have a cause. I should have been halfway to Winchester else. "'Here is a gentleman, sir,' he continued, addressing his uncle, "'whom I have met seeking the right way and finding the wrong, "'and I failed not in promising him your hospitality for the night.' "'Right, Richard, you did right,' replied the old knight, "'raising his tall form from the seat by the fire. "'Sir, you are most welcome.' "'Quick, you of Clapford, leave cutting that bow and speed to the buttery and the kitchen. "'Bring them wine and meat, I pray you, sir, take the seat by the fire.' "'Nay, not so, noble sir,' replied Hal of Hadnock, in a courteous tone. "'I am not one to take the place of venerable years and high renown. "'Thanks for your welcome and good fortune to your roof-tree. "'I beseech you, let me make no confusion. "'I will place me here.' "'And he drew a stool from the table somewhat nearer to the fire.' and seated himself, while all eyes were fixed upon him. 
Richard of Woodville, too, took a better view of his companion than he had hitherto obtained, and that view satisfied him that he had not introduced to his uncle Hall a guest who, in point of rank and station at least, was not well deserving of a place therein. The stranger was, as I have already said, a tall and somewhat slim young man, perhaps four or five-and-twenty years of age, with black hair and close-shaved beard, keen dark eyes, long and sinewy limbs, and a chest of great width and depth. His features were remarkably fine, his brow wide and expansive, his forehead high, and the whole expression of his countenance noble and commanding. His dress was rich and costly without being gaudy, his coat of deep brown covering the hips like that of a crossbowman was of the finest cloth and ornamented with small lines of gold in a quaint but not ungraceful pattern instead of the hood then commonly worn his head was covered with a small cap of velvet and one long penache or feather clasped with a large jewel his dagger and the hilt of his sword were both studded with rubies and though his riding boots of untanned leather were cut square off at the toe instead of being encumbered with the long points still in fashion over them were buckled with a broad strap and flap a pair of gilt spurs showing that he had seen service in arms and had won knightly rank his tight-fitting hose were of a light philomot or brownish yellow colour and round the leg below the knee was a mark as if the impression of a thong seeming to prove that when not in riding attire he was accustomed to wear shoes so long that the horn's points were obliged to be fastened up by a gilt chain, as was then not unusual. His manner was highly courteous, but it was remarked that at first he committed what has in most ages been considered an act of rudeness, remaining with his head covered some minutes after he entered the hall. But at length, seeming suddenly to remember that such was the case, he took off his cap and laid it on the table. Sir Philip Beecham, without asking any question of his guest, proceeded at once to name to him the different persons assembled round the fire, but as we have already heard who they were, it is needless to give a recapitulation here. Richard of Woodville, however, marked, or fancied, that as the old knight pronounced the name of Sir Simeon of Royden, a brief glance of recognition passed between that personage and his companion of the road, but neither claimed the other as an acquaintance and Woodville said nothing to call attention to what he had observed. "'It will seem scarcely courteous, sir,' said the guest as Sir Philip ended, "'not to give you my own name, though you in your hospitality will not ask it. But yet for the present I will beg you to call me simply Hal of Hadnock, and ere I go, Sir Philip, in your own ear I will tell more. And now pray let me not kill mirth, or break off a pleasant tale, or stop a sweet lay, for doubtless you passed the long eves of March, as did the knights and dames in our old friend Chaucer's dreams. Some to read old romances, them occupied for their pleasances, some to make verilays and lays, and some to the other diverse plays. Nay, sir, answered the old knight, who had glanced with a smile at his guest's gilded spurs, as he gave himself the name of Hal of Hadnock. We were but talking of some old deeds of arms, which doubtless you in your career have often heard of. As to lays, when my nephew Richard is away, we have but little poesy in the house, except when this sweet ward of mine, Mary Markham, will sing us a gay ditty. Not to-night, not to-night, cried the lady on Isabel Beecham's left. I am not in tune to-night. 
Isabel bent her head to her fair companion and whispered a word which made the blood come warm into Mary Markham's cheek. But Catherine, with a gay toss of her head and a glance of her blue eye at the handsome stranger, exclaimed, "'I love neither lay nor ballad. They are but plain English twisted out of form and set to duller tune.' "'Indeed, lady,' said the stranger, gazing upon her with an incredulous smile, "'I have ever thought that music and verse made sweet things sweeter.' and methinks even now, were it some tender lay addressed to your bright looks, you would not find the sound so rude. A smile passed round the little circle, but did not visit the lip of Sir Henry Dacre, and though Catherine Beecham laughed with a scornful smile, it seemed as if she knew not well whether to look upon the stranger's words as kind or uncourteous. "'Ha, Katie, touch you there,' said the old knight. "'What think you, Abbot? Has not our guest judged our niece aright?' "'I believe it is so with all ladies,' answered the abbot gravely. "'They find the words of praise sweet and the words of blame bitter, "'whether it be in song or saying. "'You men of the world nurture them in such folly. "'You flatter them too much, so that, like the tongue of a wine-bibber, "'they can taste nothing but what is high-seasoned.' "'Faith not a whit, reverend lord,' cried Halif had not gaily. "'Craving your forgiveness, we deal with them as heaven intended.' fair and delicate in mind and frame we shelter their persons from all rough winds and storms as far as may be and their ears from all harsh sounds they were not made to cope with the rough things of life and if they find wholesome exercise for body and soul good father in the chase and in the confessional it is as much as is needed the church has the staple trade for truth especially with ladies and for any layman to make it their merchandise would be against the laws of Cupid's realm. "'I fear you speak lightly, my son,' said the abbot with a good-humoured smile, "'but here comes your meal, and I will give it my blessing.' By such words as these the ice of new acquaintance was soon broken, and as the guest sat down at the side of the long table to partake of such viands as his entertainer's hospitality provided for him, the party round the fire separated into various groups.' The good master of the mansion approached to do the honours of his board, and pressed the stranger to his food. Catherine seemed smitten with a sudden fit of affection for her uncle, and placed herself near him, where, with no small spice of coquetry, she sought to engage the attention of the visitor to herself. Sir Henry Dacre remained talking by the fire with Isabel Beecham, and whatever was the subject of their discourse the faces of both remained grave, almost sad, while at a little distance Richard of Woodville conversed in low tones with fair Mary Markham, and their faces presented the aspect of an April sky, with its clouds and its sunshine being sometimes overshadowed by a look of care and anxiety, sometimes smiling gaily as if the inextinguishable hopes of youth blazed suddenly up into a flame, after burning low and dimly for a while, under some cold blast from the outward world. The abbot had resumed his seat by the fire, and Sir Simeon of Royden had not quitted his, but the latter, though the good monk spoke to him from time to time, seemed buried in his own thoughts, answered briefly and often vaguely, and then fell into a reverie again, turning occasionally his eyes upon his fair kinswoman and the stranger with an expression of no great pleasure. With the old knight and Catherine Beecham in the meanwhile, Halif had not kept up the conversation gaily, seeming to find a pleasure in so mingling sweet and bitter things together, in his language to the lady, as sometimes to flatter, sometimes to pique her, and thus, without her knowing it, 
he contrived to put her through all her paces like a managed horse, till every little weakness and fault in her character was displayed one after another. At first Sir Philip Beecham was amused and laughed at the stranger's merry jests, thinking, "'It will do Kate good to hear some wholesome truth from an impartial tongue.' But as he saw that, whether intentionally or not, the words of Hal of Hadnock had the effect of bringing out all the evil points in her disposition to the eyes of his guest, he grew uneasy for his brother's child and felt all her faults more keenly from seeing her thus expose them in mere vanity to the acquaintance of an hour. He saw then, with satisfaction, his guest's meal draw towards a close, and as soon as it was done, proposed that they should all retire to rest. There was some consideration required as to what chamber should be assigned to Hal of Hadnock, for small pieces of ceremony were, in those days, matters of importance, but Sir Philip Beecham decided the matter by telling Richard of Woodville to lead the visitor to the Rose Tapestry Room, and to place a good yeoman to sleep across his door. It was one of the principal guest-chambers of the house, and its selection showed that the good knight judged his nephew's fellow-traveller to be of higher rank than he assumed. Lighted by a page, Richard of Woodville led the way, and entered with his companion, when they reached the apartment to which they had been directed. Although it was now late, he remained there more than an hour, in conversation deeply interesting to himself, at least. End of chapter 2